in your Bible today, the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis, chapter number 37. And uh, the, the subject today is Joseph, the model of moral manhood. Joseph, the model of moral manhood. And I have a secondary title today. This is a Father's Day message, but it's for all men. A Father's Day message for all men. Let me add now, and all women, because it will be relevant for you as well. So I hope you will listen to me. In your Bible, Genesis 37, would you stand as we read God's Word together, please? Genesis 37, beginning in verse number 2. These are the generations of Jacob. And so we're introduced to a whole new section of the book of Genesis. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. The lad was with the sons of Billah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. In other words, he kind of was a tattletale on his brothers here. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors, and you've heard of that often. When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream. He told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. He said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed yet another dream, and I won't go into it, but it conveyed the same message. Thank you, and you may be seated, please. Why is Joseph so important in the Bible? We begin here in Genesis chapter 37, and the next 13 chapters all the way through chapter 50, except for one chapter, that's 38. So 12 chapters here are devoted to the life of this one man, Joseph. That's extraordinary in the Bible. Very few people other than our Lord Jesus Christ have that many chapters, that much volume of Scripture regarding them. And the reason Joseph is so important is his life provides for us the background for the book of Exodus. If you don't understand these chapters, these 12 chapters leading up to Exodus, you're probably not going to fully comprehend the significance of the book of Exodus. And it will answer things for you like, how did the Hebrews, they were not a nation, they were not Israel yet, they were Hebrew people, just really one family of about 70-some people. And how did the Hebrews end up down in Egypt? And how did they become slaves subsequently? And why is Joseph so relevant to us? Well, I can tell you there's not a more relevant passage that we could look at today 
and particularly on Father's Day, than this one passage right here. You see, Joseph knew what it was to face extreme temptation and to succeed in overcoming it. He knew what it was like to face injustice and adversity at a level that very few people ever have to. He knew what it was like to come from a dysfunctional family. His family was just about the definition of dysfunctional. And yet, he was able to bring the family together because of his spirit and his attitude. He's first mentioned right here in chapter 37 in verse 2 of Genesis. He's 17 years old. He would be today a junior in high school or maybe a senior. And he's the favorite son. It says it two times in the brief passage we read, the favorite son of his father, his father Jacob, later called Israel himself. His father had two wives, and each of them had a concubine. So in essence, he had four wives and 13 children. But Joseph was the very favorite of all of the children. And his father gave him this coat, this very special coat. It's called the coat of many colors. And it had deep significance to it because it marked him as being the leader of the family. Whoever the father gave this coat to is now in the father's eyes, his successor, he is going to be the one who is going to take over the leadership of the family. Well, that created a bad situation. Anytime you have polygamy and bigamy and families like this with multiple wives and or husbands or whatever, you're set up for terrible distress and terrible conflict in the family, of course. In America, we wisely pass laws against polygamy and bigamy, though it appears that those things may be on the way back because of other laws that we have passed. But at any rate, here's a bad situation, and it gets worse because in his immaturity, I guess, Joseph doesn't have any better discernment than to go before his brothers and say, hey, I dreamed this dream. We were out in the field threshing the wheat, cutting the wheat, binding the little sheaves of wheat, and uh, my sheaf stood up, and yours all bowed down to it. And then he gives them another dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they all bowed down to me, and you're the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made himself out, unwisely at least, to be the star of the family. <laughs> and so you can see that there is resentment building toward him from these 12 brothers that he has. And they were stirred even more when they had to take the flocks out to find pasture land and take a great distance. And when they did, the father sent him to find out about their well-being probably after a month or two. And when he got there, Boy, they, they were angry at him. After all, why aren't you out here helping us? You are the favorite son. You are always, the dad is always showing you favoritism. So as they saw him coming, they hatched a plan, and the plan was to kill him. But interestingly, Reuben, who was the firstborn of the family, who was the oldest son, Reuben said, no, don't kill him. Now, Reuben should have been the leader. He should have gotten the coat. But the reason he didn't get the coat is he had committed adultery with one of his father's concubines. 
And so he was removed from the scene here. But he did speak up and save Joseph's life. So instead of killing him, they sold him as a slave to a caravan of Midianites going down to Egypt. And when the Midianites got there, they sold him to a man named Potiphar, the head of the army. And he is now a slave. The brothers returned back home, lied to their father and said, well, an animal killed him. Here's his bloody coat to prove it. And so it was a terrible, terrible situation from which he came. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today, particularly. I want to ask, I asked myself this question as I was reading this in my daily devotions not too long back, a couple months back. And I was intrigued by it. I started making some notes and out of it, the message of today. The question on my mind is, what was there in Joseph that brought God's blessing upon him in spite of all these problems? What is it that this man had in his life that God blessed him in such a rich manner? Look in chapter 39 in verse 2 with me, if you will, there in your Bible. Just flip over a couple of pages. He's now in the household of Potiphar, the general, the head of the Egyptian army, and he's the slave. He is the household servant, if you will. In chapter 39 and verse 2, it says, but the Lord was with him, and he was a prosperous man. Wait a minute, he's a slave, but he's prospering. 39 and 3, the Lord was with him and made all that he did to prosper. Genesis 39 and 5, the Lord blessed him, referring to Potiphar, his master, for his sake, because Joseph was in his house, the whole family were blessed. Genesis 39 and verse number 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison after he has been thrown into prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, and the Lord made it to prosper. Every time he's mentioned here, it talks about his prospering. It talks about what the Lord is doing in his life that in spite of being a slave, in spite of being in a horrible prison environment here later on, God is always working. What was there in his life that brought such blessing upon his life? That's the subject this morning, and I want to give you three thoughts on that. Number one, if you're taking notes with me, in temptation, he was preserved by the fear of the Lord. In temptation... Joseph was preserved by the fear of the Lord. I want you to get hold of that. Let's go to chapter 39 and read about that temptation that he faced there in Potiphar's house. Chapter 39 and verse 7, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. And said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knoweth not what is with me in the house. He hath committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, 
neither hath he kept back anything from me but you, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He says to her. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. This is not a one-time thing. This goes on day after day after day repeatedly. And that as she spake to him day by day, he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And you know the story, no doubt. Now, this is about as powerful a temptation as a young man could ever face. Wouldn't you say so? What greater temptation could a young man have than this? He's about 18 years old at the most at this time. Just a just a young man. And here's his master's wife. No doubt this man, the general of the army, wealthy, powerful, influential. She probably was a good looker. And she was wealthy. And she was young. And she was attractive. And she's dealing with him from a position of power. She's in charge in that house when her husband is not away. And so she over and over attempts to seduce him day by day by day. You can't think of a more powerful temptation that a man would face than this. Turn, keep your finger there. Turn quickly with me to the book of Proverbs because there's nothing more powerful than for me to just simply share with you what God says in his word and I want you to see it. I want every man here, I hope you'll have a Bible accessible to you. This will help you if you will listen, because this is God's Word on the matter. Proverbs chapter 5, and we begin in verse 3. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end, the result of her being with her, is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps take hold on hell. And it constantly is a theme here through Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty, Joseph, in your heart. Neither let her take you with her eyelids, her attractiveness. Verse 32, whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Chapter 6 and verse 7, at the window of my house, I look through my casement and behold among the simple ones, the naive ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. He went the way to her house. And in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. And it goes on and describes her. If you'll go down through the verse there, 16, I've decked my bed with coverings of tapestry. 
with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come and let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man, that's her husband, is not at home. And he's going on a long journey, and you don't have to worry about it. He won't be back. And she seduced him in every way that she could. And over and over and over, the Bible says it warns us against these kind, this kind of behavior. Now, I think that's an important thing to say on Father's Day. Because fathers, you can destroy your home in one moment of weakness and giving in to a temptation. You can destroy it forever. You can lose the respect of your children. And they may never tell you, but they'll walk by your casket and remember it. Don't forget that. You be true to your wife. What was it that protected him in such a powerful, powerful time of temptation? It was the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Now, that's a technical term. I won't go into the theological implications of it. It means more than people think it means. Let me just give you a definition of it, though. I got this from an evangelist named Dale Faisenfeld 40 years ago, and I've never heard a better one. The fear of the Lord is the continual awareness that I'm in the presence of a holy, just, and almighty God. I'm always in His presence. He is always aware of me and seeing me. And also, it is to understand that every thought I think, every word I speak, every action I engage in is open before and being judged by Him. That's the technical definition, the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord was the strongest protective thing He could possibly have. And men and ladies as well, it's the it's the most powerful protective thing that we have today, just to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord mentioned scores of times throughout your Bible, but it gives you a proper perspective of sin. Listen to me. Follow my logic. If you have the fear of the Lord in your life, it gives you a different perspective of sin than what the world out there is telling you to do because the world is telling you to go ahead and indulge. His perspective of sin, he tells us here, one, it's a sin against Potiphar's wife. It's a sin with the woman in which he's engaging. Secondly, it's a sin against her husband. He's away on business. He's leading the army in a war somewhere perhaps. But you're sinning against that man when you commit adultery with his wife. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, it says you also are sinning against your own body. Every sin is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. And lastly, it's a sin against Almighty God. Look in chapter 39 and how he says it. Verse number 9, at the end of the verse, it says, How then can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. So for him to fall into this temptation was to sin against her, against himself, against her husband, 
and against Almighty God, it says it here. So the fear of the Lord, the powerful protective wall that he had in his life that kept him from falling into sin, that's why he's a model of moral manhood. You see, the fear of the Lord, I, I, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I went to first Bible college, I guess, I ever went to. They told me the fear of the Lord is a reverential trust. That's all they ever defined it. And, and since then, it's all I ever heard until I met Del Fazenfeld, and he gave me that definition. See, a reverential trust is, is, is that, that's part of it. it it's, like, it's like understanding the blessings of fire and water. They're essential. We can't live without them. They're also dangerous if they're out of control. And in the same way, you see, a sexual relationship is essential. We've got to have that to have reproduction to carry on the species. But if it's out of control, it's like fire that burns and water that will drown and flood. And so it's more than just a reverential trust you see. And in Proverbs 16 and 6, it says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. In chapter 8 and verse 13, the fear of the Lord, listen to this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to hate evil. It's not to be sort of neutral toward it. The fear of the Lord is is we hate evil when it rises up in front of us. Proverbs 14 and 27, it's a fountain of life a source of life. It'll spare your life, the fear of the Lord. Chapter 15 and verse 16, it's the source of contentment. You want contentment in your life? Then understand the fear of the Lord and practice that, my friends. And so the, we find here this biblical principle, sexual activity outside of marriage. Well, we we tend to think this is just, uh, that came in with Moses and the law. Now, that's 500 years later. 500 years later. Before the law was ever written, here's a man who calls immorality, he calls it a great wickedness against God. Before the law, under the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. And today in the age of grace, we have this repeated in the New Testament. So it's still a binding commandment of the Lord for us today. And now, why would I focus on this? Because in the culture we're living in, we know how immoral this culture is. We know that sexual permissiveness has been normalized. In many ways, even encouraged since about the 60s. We know today that on a college campus, maybe on a high school campus, virgins are mocked. Virgins are mocked. They're ridiculed. So I think some good biblical insights on this could really help us today. Sexual issues dominate the news today. Straight and gay and trans. And had he messed up here, he would have sacrificed the permanent blessing of God upon the altar of immediacy for a few moments of pleasure in bed with that woman. In Genesis 39 and 17, you see how 
fickle she was. She goes to her husband when he comes home, and she speaks about him, and she makes up this story, and she lies and turns it around. And here's what she says. You know what? That Hebrew slave you bought, he tried to. She turned it completely around and lied. That Hebrew slave. She speaks of him derogatorily. That Hebrew slave. You can hear her, the hiss in that when she says it. So the tempta- in temptation, he's preserved by the fear of the Lord. But number two today, in adversity, he learned godly wisdom. Now he's thrown into jail. Now he's in the prison. An innocent man, talk about injustice, sold as a slave when he's 17, sentenced to prison when he's 18. He's going to be in prison for 12 more years, 12 long years. And yet, according to chapter 39, look there again with me, and in verse number 21, In chapter 39, the Lord was with him and showed him mercy and gave him favor. And the jailer put everything in the jail there in his hand, put him under his authority and put everything under his authority there. He rose to the top. (laughs) You can't keep a good man down, huh? And so whether he is in the household of the general or whether he is now in the prison, he rises to the top because he practices the fear of the Lord. And secondly, He's learned godly wisdom. I want you to turn with me the book of Psalms. There's an interesting insight into the life of Joseph, and his name is even mentioned there in Psalm 105 and verse 17. And this has to do with his gaining wisdom while he's being in, uh, a prisoner. Psalm 105 and verse number 17. It says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant or a slave, whose feet they hurt with fetters. They put chains on him, of course. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. And the king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free and made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance. The brief story of him. But there's one phrase right there in verse 18. I want you to notice. It says he was laid in iron. The marginal reference says his soul entered into the iron. In other words, as he suffered in prison, in adversity, God was building him strong. He was putting iron in his soul. He's turning him from a young man who has the fear of the Lord, but now he's making a man who's going to be a leader of the great nation of Israel, the greatest nation probably on the earth at that time. And so here he is, iron is entering into his soul. God is using adversity to build powerful, powerful character to prepare him. He didn't understand that the way to the palace was through a prison, 12 long years of suffering, a slave, a prisoner, But he comes out of it, and look what Pharaoh says about him. Go over to chapter 41. Chapter 41 and verse 39. Here's what the prison life did for him. 41 and 39. Pharaoh said to Joseph, For as much as God hath showed you all this, 
There's none so discreet and wise as thou. Boy, get a hold of that. The slave who becomes the prisoner, who becomes the wisest man in Egypt. The wisest man in Egypt is this man, Joseph. Why? He had the fear of the Lord. That was his protection against evil. He had adversity that he faced with the right kind of spirit, the right kind of attitude, and it gave him wisdom. God used his years in prison to put iron in his soul. Listen to me. Don't miss this. Adversity does not mean God has forsaken you. I'm looking over a crowd of people today, and I know there's a bunch of you going through adversity, tremendous problems, family problems, financial problems, problems rearing children. I, I, I go on business problems, etc. People facing adversity of various levels, various degrees, various kinds, but you're in adversity. You feel pressured. You feel squeezed. You feel like, how am I going to get through this? And here's a man in that dirty, filthy Egyptian dungeon for 12 years going in as an 18-year-old boy, coming out as a 30-year-old man. And the Pharaoh, because of his wisdom and activity, says, you're the wisest man in Egypt. God has done something big in his life and in his soul, hasn't he? Remember this. Some of you waiting for a Christian mate, and you think, oh, I'll never be able to find anybody. Some of you are unhappy with your job. I'll never get out of this dead-end job. I'm in. Some of you are going through a death or going through a tragedy, going for, for some personal issue that nobody knows about. Is life ever going to change for me? Remember, Joseph, 12 long years, God has never forsook him. God was working in him all the way through. God did not forsake Joseph. He didn't forget Joseph, and he won't forget you. He won't forget you. And thirdly and lastly, so in temptation, he had the fear of the Lord. In adversity, he developed godly wisdom. But in leadership, he was led of the Holy Spirit. Go back to your Bible, chapter 41 this time. And verse number 38, 41 and 38, and Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of God is, even the pagan king and the pagan Egyptians could see that this man had God's Spirit and God's power in his life. Even the pagans recognized the work of the Holy Spirit in Joseph's life. So much so that the Pharaoh brought him right out of the prison, told him to shave, put on clean clothes, and come up to the palace. I want to talk to you. And when he gets there, the Pharaoh says, you told me that we are going to have this drought. 
and we're going to have this famine because of the drought. And for seven years, there are going to be seven good years, and we need to save and, and prepare. And then seven years of famine in which it, the rest of the world is going to wither away. But you've got a plan. You're the wisest man in Egypt. I want you to come up. You're going to be second to me in the throne. In fact, if you will look in chapter number 39, I believe it is, chapter 39 and verse 41, he says to him, well, it's not 39, 41. Well, whatever one it is, I won't worry about it. But Pharaoh said to him, you're going to be second in authority only, only to me. You're going you're to ride in the second chariot when we go down through the middle of Wall Street here or down through the middle of the, the, the square and the people are cheering and welcoming the leadership of the country. You're going to be second to me in authority over the whole land of Egypt. There's no saying in there that trouble will make you better or it will make you bitter. And you have to choose, of course, which one that will be. And so up in the land of Canaan, old Jacob says to his sons, we've got to prepare because we're out of food. I hear there's food down there in Egypt. Go down there and buy some corn and wheat and some, some food for us. And they came down to Egypt to buy their food. And ultimately, they went through all the bureaucratic channels, I guess. And they're ushered into the presence of the man who is in charge of the distribution and the preparation of food for the whole nation. What a position. You know what? If, if, if people are starving, the man who's in charge of the food supply is the most powerful man in the whole country. And they come, they come into his presence. And the Bible says, well, he recognizes them, but they have no idea who he is. Twelve years, maturity, heartbreak, adversity. And now he has the garb on and the appearance of an Egyptian. And these shepherds come into the room, and he knows who they are, and they don't know who he is. And the memories flood his brain. Man, I remember how they haunted me and taunted me. The, word, the names they called me when my daddy gave me that coat of many colors. I remember how I was crying and begging them not to put me in that pit and sell me to those Midianites. And they laughed at me and sold me anyhow. I remember being in that prison all those years, that vile, filthy environment, that horrible food that they gave us. I remember the taunts of those wicked men as they kidded me about being a Jew and a Hebrew. And these guys caused it all. You know what had been a great time for some revenge, wouldn't it? He had the authority. He could have done anything. He, he could have had all 11 of them beheaded. But you know what? He is led by the Spirit. He's a Spirit-filled man, man. Listen to me. Spirit-filled people want reconciliation, not revenge. 
And this family that had been torn apart and was still torn apart, he ultimately tells them who he is. He throws himself on their neck and he kisses them. And I'll bet he went to all 11 of them and he said, I want to forgive you. You treated me wrong, but you know what? You're my flesh and my blood. I forgive you. Welcome to Egypt. I'm going to take care of my family from now on. Go on up and get your dad and my little brother Benjamin and bring them down here. And we're going to have a wonderful time in the Lord. Revenge or forgiveness? Let me tell you something. If you are being led by the Spirit, you're the healer in your family. You're not the one who causes the dysfunction. You're the one that the Holy Spirit, that God will use to reconcile that family and bring it back together as he did him. And I like chapter 50 and verse 20. Turn over there for a moment. Genesis 50 and verse 20, one of the great verses in the book of Genesis. Men, what you did for me, to me, you did it for evil, but God used it for good to the saving of our whole family. You tried it, you, you went after me, and it was evil. But you know what? God even takes evil. God takes sin, and only God can turn it around and make it for good. Boy, I would have liked to have seen that reunion, wouldn't you? What a wonderful, sweet scene it would have been. And let me tell you, and let me leave you with this, no matter how dysfunctional your family, and there's a lot of dysfunction in families, no matter how dysfunctional your family the Holy Spirit of God can heal your family today. But it takes wisdom, it takes the fear of the Lord, and it takes the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Will you bow your head with me in prayer?